message from Valley Bible Fellowship. It is our sincere prayer that you're richly blessed through the ministry of the Word. For more information about VBF, visit our website at vbf.org. Thank you guys. Thank you. Hey, let's do this. If anyone here in the room has uh, served in the military, law enforcement, first responders, with those of you that have served, please stand up. I'd like to acknowledge you that have served in that capacity. Thank you, guys. If you guys have your Bibles, wouldn't mind opening up to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 is the passage we'll be reading from momentarily here. And as you guys are turning there to kind of fill you in a little bit and give you an idea of what it was I was doing in the SEAL teams on the last deployment I was involved in, I was out in Iraq and given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and there's roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with a group called the ISOF. It's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys, it's simple. Teach them how to fight their own fights. And so what's the best way to do that? Well, that would be train them on base. But beyond that, go outside the wire and fight side by side with them. And so if you could use your imagination, whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good. Why? Because we've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes. We're making the world a better place. And we're coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And at that point, we weren't really sure if the ice officer was ready for us to pass that baton off to them. So we decided, hey, for this final operation, why don't we try and make it a sort of graduation operation? We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up, and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. So they're starting from scratch, hitting the streets. What's the first thing they need? They need some intel to operate on. Where they find this source... Source informs them about this man that's an Iraqi policeman. Now we're looking into this policeman by day, but at night, back home, as it turns out, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And so the ISOF, they come up with this whole plan they're presenting to us. Here's how we would like to approach the house, get in, grab this guy, extract, and it all checks out, looks pretty good as we train them. Then an odd request. They said, hey, for this final operation, you know, we've noticed that we get shot at more as the ISOF. Would you be willing, you SEALs, to maybe take off your American colored uniforms. We got a pile of ISOF uniforms for you guys that you can put on. So like, all right, let's get this straight. You want us to put your uniforms on in hopes that we blend in with you in hopes that we get shot at more with you. And they're like, yeah, it's like, fine. It's not about the uniforms. So we get their uniforms on. Well, the funny thing is, you know, my dark complexion start growing out a little facial hair. I'm walking around on base with this Iraqi uniform on and the guys on my team are looking at me like, hey, Williams, you're starting to blend in with these guys a little bit around here. And so I'm embracing that, going out on this final lap. I'm standing up in the Humvee, this section called the turret. You've seen it in the movies. Guy kind of partially out of the vehicle with a weapon in front of him. Well, the weapon I have in front of me this night is the 50 caliber machine gun. And for those of you in the room that don't know, let's just say that that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. I've got these night vision goggles on. I'm looking through my green little world and just kind of going over this mental inventory. I remember it like it was last night, standing there thinking, all right, I know where this guy lives, how we're going to get in, grab him, extract. And then one unique thing I know about this operation that truly makes it different than every operation, I know this is it. This is the final operation. We're done after this. And so I couldn't help but to think, 
man, just a matter of days from now, I'm going to be back in my hometown, Southern California, surfing in the ocean. But here's what none of us really knew about that night was that we were actually being set up the entire time to get thrown the absolute worst circumstances we'd been in on this entire deployment as we find ourselves getting set up on an ambush and suddenly now we're engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, do what we do best in the teams that led to the obvious conclusion that I made it out of that situation alive. But I think it's worth remembering that it doesn't always work out that way. We need to remember that freedom isn't free. Speaking not only of our earthly freedom, but also our eternal freedom. That earthly freedom paid for in the blood of our soldiers on the battlefield. That eternal freedom paid for in the blood of our Savior there at the cross. It always comes at a cost. And so perhaps more on how that ambush played out if time allows, but I do want to get into God's word here. So 2 Kings chapter 5, I'm reading from the New King James Version. We'll be reading about a soldier by the name of Naaman, and had there been Navy SEALs during his time, I think you'll see it. He probably would have been one of them. And so starting in verse 1, it says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and they brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus is the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria says, go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed. And took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Quick translation, that's the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver, and some apparel. He's prepared to pay this guy off. Do whatever you got to do. Jump ahead to verse 9. In verse 9, we find Naaman in route. And you have to keep in mind, this is enemy-occupied territory. This 150-mile trip that he's making with horses and chariots. He's got the entourage with him. Verse 9, so it goes. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. Look at Naaman's response, verse 11. But Naaman became furious. And he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me. Stand, call in the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana, the far part, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Relevance of this passage coming up shortly. What I'd like to do is share with you guys a little bit of that road to becoming a seal. For me, fresh out of high school, attending a local community college, the saying is very true. If you aim at nothing, you will hit it. And unfortunately, that was the aim at that time. I'm failing all my classes, and it's my own fault. I'm not showing up. I've been ditching throughout the year. I'm hanging out with friends, going surfing. But now it's the end of the year. I don't even know why I'm pulling into the parking lot. It's time to take finals. I didn't study for it. And for whatever reason, it took that moment right there for it to just hit me in the face, this realization 
Like, hey, I'm turning out to be a loser. <laughs> I mean, the kind of guy that no young person wants to be because when we're young, we get told things like, hey, the sky's the limit. You could do anything you want to do. And you know what? That's all very true. You know, big word potential gets thrown around, but there does come a certain point in your life where you need to kind of question, like, what trajectory am I on right now? And so just seeing all my peers pass me by, I'm not even making it at the local community college. I'm thinking, how do I turn this around? And so I'm sitting there in my truck, and I think I come up with the perfect plan. School parking lot, I know what to do with my life. I'm going to go become an Alaskan crab fisherman. I'm watching Deadliest Catch on TV. I'm thinking, yeah, by far, one of the most dangerous jobs in the world and good money in that. And I almost went with that when the other idea popped into my head. Wait, no, why can't I go join the military? And not just that, I want to be a part of the most elite. I want to go through that most difficult, grueling military training. I know what I want to be. I want to be a Navy SEAL. And so I'm sitting in a school parking lot, about to go take finals that I didn't study for. Man, I just make up my mind. That's what I want. That's my aim small, miss small in life right there. I want to be a Navy SEAL. So I figure, hey, my first order of business is this. If I'm going to join the military, if I'm going to go be a frogman, I don't need to go to class anymore. I started the truck up and took off out of that school parking lot. Never took those tests. But of course, I got to present to my dad some bad news and good news as I framed it. And so I let him know the bad news, what's going on at school. Of course, he didn't know, and so he's kind of facepalming, like, oh, son. He's like, oh, what's the good news? Well, I'm just waiting for that. I'm like, it's all right, Dad. I got a plan. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so you can put yourself in his shoes for a moment here. Here's your son. That hasn't demonstrated the discipline it takes to make it through the local community college level, but he's informing you, it's okay, because I'm going to go be a SEAL. And so he's just trying to let me know, hey, son, joining the military is not like anything you have ever done in the past. This isn't playing ball. This isn't skateboarding. This isn't attending a local community college that when you decide you're over it, you could just stop. He says, if you join the military, and maybe then you find out it's not for you, or suppose you quit and don't make it through SEAL training, just to be clear you will still be in the military and you're probably gonna pick up a job like chip and paint off some boat off the coast of Japan. Well, there's some truth to that. But for whatever reason, the kind of guy I was at that stage of life is like, man, that was one of the most motivational speeches I'd ever heard. You know, I'm the kind of like, you imply that maybe I can't do something and I just bolt down, I wanna do it even more. And so I realized actions speak louder than words, I gotta prepare. And so I am doing that. I'm all the running, swimming, pull-ups, push-ups. Days are going by. And he invites me into his room. And he says, so you want to do this? You want to be a SEAL? Yeah, Dad, I want to be a SEAL. He goes, well, great. I set up a workout for you with the Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. And I'll never forget looking over at the screen thinking, my dad doesn't know any Navy SEALs. What is this? And I just read in this little one-liner in the email. All it says is, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? And I'm like, play? Like, dad, what is this? You met some guy off the internet that says he wants to play with me, and you're going to arrange this right now? He goes, no, he's a SEAL, son. You can't trust everything someone says on the web, dad. And he goes, this guy's a SEAL. I'm like, all right, if you really want me to, I'll go meet up with the guy. Because it turns out there's more of a conversation that took place on the phone prior to that email that I didn't know about. On the phone, it was like this. Hey, look, my son wants to be a Navy SEAL. But here's the deal. He has no idea what he's signing up for. He doesn't know what he's getting involved in. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to maybe meet up with my son. And I'm asking for a really big favor. Would you meet up with them? And what I'm asking you to do is I need you to just crush him. Like just bury him. Beat the desire of becoming a seal out of him. Guy thought about it for a while. That was the reply in the email. His answer was, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? And so 
Fast forward to this meeting, the guy meets me up in a parking lot, spotting me right away in the parking lot, pointing his finger at me, you Chad? Uh, yes, sir. All right, Bubba. I was Bubba from that point forward. You know, next thing I know, I'm off on a run. Sends me out on this run, and just to kind of compress things a little bit, I wind up out in the middle of the wetlands, middle of nowhere. He says he's going to catch up with me. I'm not seeing this guy around. And I'm looking over my shoulder, still not seeing this guy. I don't even know where I'm supposed to end up. I'm just giving this direction of go out into the wetlands, down this dirt trail away from the ocean. And as I'm looking back, I start getting this idea in my head. Like, hey, maybe, maybe I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't catch up on the run. And I'm celebrating in my mind, looking back, and then it is like a scene right out of Terminator 2. You remember when the bad dude can morph into like knife hands and chase down the moving vehicle, the T-1? I'm looking back, here comes this Navy SEAL with knife hands after me, right? He is closing in like a canine that got let out of the back of a squat car, all right? Like, I can't keep that distance. He catches up to where I am. Here I am thinking, we're just in a foot race, a run. That's where I'm greeted by his fist, just impaling my stomach as he gets right to where I am. And I mean, just knocks the wind right out of me as my feet are coming off the ground. I remember seeing blue sky, that weightlessness, hitting the ground, poofing dirt up all around me. And you got to put yourself in my shoes for a moment here as this guy jumps on top of me like a wild animal. I'm thinking some guy, my dad bit off the internet. I'm thinking child predator. I mean, he's got me by the shirt. I still remember the sound of the threads of my shirt ripping as he's just throwing me around, screaming in my face. But then these words sunk in. It hit. He says, you want to be a Navy SEAL? You better stay three paces behind me. And there's just something about that moment right there where I realized this is it. This is for real. And something told me inside. If I quit right now, that's it for me, man. I'll forever be a quitter. Like the way I respond in this moment, it's going to set the tone. It's going to set the trajectory of the rest of my life. And so like it or not, this is the moment right here. And so I just kind of affirm this attitude of just like, dude, I'd rather die than quit. I'd rather get taken out of here in a body bag than wind up being a quitter for life. And so he says three paces and he turns and he takes off and shows no mercy and I'm getting up. And I'll just say, looking back in hindsight, after having gone through SEAL training, which is arguably by far the most difficult military training in the world, hands down, maybe some time to talk on that. I could just say, looking back, I never went through a more difficult singular workout, I should call it a beatdown session, than this encounter with this Navy SEAL, Scott Halvinston. But we finally get to this point, miles down this trail, the suffering finally comes to an end, the dust settles. And he's pacing back and forth, and this guy looks like he's got a lot going on inside of his head. He looks like he wants to fight. He looks like one of these cage fighters just waiting for the referee to say the words. Like, let's get it on. And I don't even want to project to this guy that I'm willing or wanting to fight him at all. I'm like this teenage skater punk kid. So I remember looking down thinking, okay, Chad, don't set this guy off. No direct eye contact. Just keep him in your peripherals. Don't look him in the eyes. And he breaks this really awkward tension by pointing at me for a second time that day. He says, hey, if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? And I just kind of thought about it and told him what came from the heart. I said, Scott, I'll die before I quit. Well, he gets this big smile on his face, completely changes his demeanor. He goes, great, you want to meet up again for another workout tomorrow? And now I'm kind of thinking, like, are we going to address the flashback this guy had on the trail? I mean, he totally assaulted me back there. But then I thought, you know, don't bring it up. You might trigger that again. And so, like, unstable fella. I'm just like, yeah, sure. And so I'm going back home, come to find out that uh, and this is months later over lunch with the two of them. Uh, he hopped on the phone. He told my dad what's up. He says, you know what? 
uh, I met up with your son. I think you might have what it takes to make it. I'd like to start meeting up with them more. So from that point forward, I began to meet up with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvinston. Thankfully, it was no longer a beatdown. It became kind of more of a, a building up as he was investing into me. I moved on in life from being Bubba to one day he starts calling me Junior. All right, Junior, let's go. <laughs> And so Scott's this extraordinary Navy SEAL that holds all kinds of records. He's a world champion pan-athlete. He's the fastest Navy SEAL in the SEAL training obstacle course. He's the youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training. He's the only man to beat the beast on a TV program at the time called Man vs. Beast. Get this. He raced a chimpanzee through an obstacle course. Where did he pull the head of the monkey? On monkey bars. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? Like on television, only guy to do it. And so you can imagine what it's like to get trained by him. And so he trained me and he got me ready. And so now I got this date, it's set, I'm shipping off to boot camp, getting this journey started. And he takes an opportunity, he put it to go overseas one last time. He's hopping on the phone with me, he leaves before I leave. And he says, all right, Junior, I'm about to go do this thing, he's referring to going off to Iraq. And he says, I want you to know something though that I've never told anyone I've ever trained before. He says, I know you're gonna make it through SEAL training. And those words right there on the phone, I can't even explain how much that meant to me. I just could not wait to prove him right, to make him proud, and to like get this journey going. And so he's reminding me of the timeline. He's only going to be gone in Iraq a couple months, which is about the same amount of time I'll be at boot camp. So by the time I start SEAL training official in, in SoCal, he says he'll be back, and he says we're going to see him make it through. And so we get off the phone, say our goodbyes, he's gone, and I got just like literally a handful of days before I go. Well, I'm up one day, and TV's on, and who do I see on TV? A picture of Scott on TV. I'm like, what is he doing on TV again? He's on that TV program, Man vs. Beast, Combat Missions. I thought he's in Iraq right now. Smiling picture of Scott. And then I see in the lower part of the screen, underneath that smiling image, his birth date followed by a dash. And it says March 31st, 2004. And immediately then it switches from the smiling image to graphic video footage of a vehicle that is engulfed in flames which turned out to be the vehicle, very vehicle that he was in in Fallujah, Iraq, along with three other Americans, as this group of Iraqi insurgents had ambushed the vehicle and videotaped. And so now I'm watching the videotape of my lifeless mentor in the streets of Fallujah with this angry Iraqi mob surrounding the bodies, and they're doing everything they can now with sticks and rods to try and mutilate them. And then they find rope and wrap it around their legs, hooked them up to vehicles, and went dragging them through the streets of Fallujah, hung them upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge, and they set their bodies on fire. All on camera, and then they look into a camera and they chant repeatedly over and over a message for us to hear in America that I heard loud and clear. They chanted, Fallujah's the graveyard of Americans, Fallujah's the graveyard of Americans. I think pretty needless to say, I'll never have the words to describe what that moment and all the surrounding moments were like. Went through the full spectrum of it. And I'll be honest with you, I, I landed on a sense of hatred, rage, and revenge. And that is a fuel. And it's not a healthy fuel to burn on, but that fuel burns bright. And I'm just trying to be transparent. That's where I was at, is I wanted to get some get back from my mentors. I saw that through the screen. I felt like it changed me as a human being. And so there is something we're talking about here, and it has to do with how we all deal with adversity. That's one form of it, but adversity is a pretty broad brush, and it comes in a lot of different forms. All of you have faced it, and here's the thing. We all will face more. Even Jesus makes the point, in this life, you will have trouble. And so nobody's going to get a free pass. Nobody's going to be immune to facing it. You might be going through it right now. And so while it's uncontrollable, it just invades your life. You don't get to pick what you face. It's like a tsunami or a hurricane, this tornado that just comes in to run you over. You can't pick that, but you do still have a choice in what we could say is the most important determining factor 
And what is that? You control whether or not that adversity that hits you will perform as a wing or a weight in your life. Will you allow it to be a weight that just kind of sinks you? It's wrapped around your legs, sinks you, leaves you knocked down, never to get back up again? Or do you find a wing in the moment somehow, which is just a way to rise to the occasion, what we call in the SEAL teams, it's part of our creed, forged by adversity. And so adversity that you face will either be that thing that just causes you to utterly fail, or you find a way to be forged by it. And where that forging process begins, where you find that wing is going to be very case by case. I can't tell you without knowing at least like what it is that you're going through, but I'll tell you where I found my wing. Reflecting back on those last words. When we lose somebody, we go back to that last time we were with them, the last conversation. And when I was going over that last call in my head, I remembered him, I remembered him telling me, Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. Boom, there's my wing right there. I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this for so much more now. I had his name on the inside of my hat as a constant reminder of motivation to dig through. So I make it through boot camp and eventually start SEAL training, part of BUDS class 254, since we're basic underwater demolition SEAL training. This is where the rubber re uh, really meets the road. By far the most difficult military training in the world, hands down. Kind of give you guys an idea just how difficult it is, I suppose I could share with you something a little exclusive. Something that, it's not in any SEAL book, it's not in my book, it's not in any of the SEAL movies, but figure a group like this in second service. First service didn't even get this, I'll share something a little exclusive with you all. It's the most difficult day of SEAL training, and it comes the day before you graduate. See, to kind of set it up, you know, the first day of training, amongst all the tortures these instructors put you through, I mean, thousands of pull-ups and push-ups, the hundreds of miles that you run, the surf torture that you go through, I don't think it's any secret nowadays, now that Instagram is so prevalent out there, like, it's all over social media that in the teams, we have dogs that we use in our teams. You know, they're attack dogs slash, you know, bomb-sniffing dogs. So you see it all the time, but what you might not know is you get a dog in the beginning of training. And that might sound kind of cool to get this dog in the beginning, but here's the deal. Is that the last thing you want to deal with at the end of a very long day of training is some whiny, poopy, peeing dog keeping you up all night. I mean, this animal is like a little torture device, and the instructors know the sleep deprivation it'll put you through. But you know that same man's best friend. I mean, it's true. Whether you like it or not, this dog does kind of begin to grow on you. As you're looking out for him, he's your little ally, your little buddy. I named my dog Nacho, all right? So Nacho, wherever we go. But like I said, getting around to that most difficult day of training, the day before you graduate, you see, in order to demonstrate that as a Navy SEAL, you are prepared if this is what's required of you. To take life, you have to take this dog that you've loved and looked out for, and with your own bare hands, you have to turn and break its neck. I'm just playing with you guys. You don't do that to a dog in SEAL training. No, 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 no. You do it to a cat. So, I'm kidding. You don't do it to any animals, all right? I haven't tried that joke in a long time. We're living in a very different politically correct day and age. I thought, you know what, second service, let's give it a try. So, hey, just to be clear, anyone that had peed on speed dial, no, we don't kill any dogs and children. You don't even get a dog in the beginning of training. So if you took that hook, line, and sinker, I don't know what to share with you. Just to be real, the how difficult is the training? I think the numbers speak for themselves. A class of 173 guys by graduation day, there's only 13 of that original class number still standing there. So it's tough stuff. Uh, but that graduation day, it's by far one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life. I mean, I just achieved the ultimate. Not only was this one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments, is I'm getting this trident pinned into my chest. I'm looking up thinking, Scott, we did this. I got family, friends there. I'm really taking this moment in. Didn't take more than 24 hours. 
24 hours later, I felt like the wind came out of that sail and everything just began to go downhill and circle a drain from that point forward. And I couldn't wrap my mind around why. I mean, I just achieved the ultimate. And it was years later I heard a Christian philosopher speak these words that are so true and it's exactly what I experienced. He says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate and in the end, it lets him down. What he's referring to right there is something every man and woman in this room is familiar with, at least to some degree. Sometimes we talk about it as the human condition. Sometimes we refer to it as just that thing that is like, eh, the grass is always greener on the other side. Well, yeah, I'm not quite happy. I'm not quite fulfilled. not satisfied where I'm at. Well, what do you want, man? I just want a little bit more. And so we buy into this belief, if I just had this relationship, if I just, we just had this house, if we just had some kids or maybe what we're missing in our life or some grandkids or more, 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 we buy into this belief. If we just had these things, then we'd be satisfied. So what happens is you develop some type of goal and you got it in your crosshairs. You're aiming at it and it leads to good stuff. It leads to like the, that hunger leads to the drive, the hard work, the discipline, whatever it takes. And have you ever achieved that goal? Have you ever had that moment where, you know, the award is passed out, you get the trophy, you know, recognition, you eat that moment up, you are satisfied, just like you thought you would be. But what happens? Satisfaction doesn't last quite like you expected it to. And so what do you do? Well, you don't panic here. You just kind of step back for a moment. You put on your little thinking cap, and after a little bit of introspect, a light bulb goes off. Ah, I know why this didn't give me lasting fulfillment. It's simple, man. I didn't go for something big enough. If I really want it to last, I know what I need to do. I need to raise that bar. I need to go to that next rung of the ladder. I need to climb that mountain higher. And so that's what we do. We raise the bar. We climb the mountain higher. Now you're thirsting after this new goal. It's loftier. You put in all the blood, sweat, tears, hard work, determination. You get there. You drink it up. And ooh, this is the one. You're so satisfied. But what happens it's like a vicious cycle. You just get hungry and thirsty all over again, and seemingly there just is no end point. But there is an end point. And that is the whole point to that quote of one of the loneliest moments. See, the, the, the big question is this. What happens when you finally arrive at a place, man or woman, where you no longer, like all the previous times before, can say, well, I know what I'll do is I'll just go to the next rung of the ladder. No, you can't do that this time. Why not? Because you're at the last rung of the ladder. Well, you can't say, well, I'll just climb the mountain higher, gain a little bit more elevation. No, you can't do that. Why? Because this time you're at the peak of the mountain and there is nothing left to climb. And yet, like all the other times before, you're hungry, you're thirsty for more. But unlike all the other times, this time there is no more. There is no next. One of the loneliest moments a man or woman will ever experience when they've achieved that which they thought would deliver the ultimate, in the end, it lets them down. Jesus puts it best. What's it profit a man if he gains the whole world but in the end loses his soul. You could gain your version of the whole world and you see it in the lives of professional athletes, rock stars, movie stars. They gain their version of their whole world, but what's going on in their life? You see their lives falling apart at the seams, destroying their own lives with drugs, alcohol. It's on TMZ every day. They're so miserable they're committing suicide. Imagine getting to have that job, parts unknown. Anthony Bourdain, travel the world, eat different foods in different cultures. Guy's gotta be living a dream. Get paid money to do that? Yeah, secretly underneath it all, he's so miserable he's taking his own life. And we stand back and we just look like, why? Why? Don't you know what you have? Don't you know what people would trade just to be in your shoes? But maybe that's just it. Having all the world has to offer isn't all that's cracked up to be. 
And that's where Jesus says those words, what's it profit a man? If he gains the whole world, in the end, loses his soul. The reality is this. If you don't have any peace with your creator, which you are made to know your creator, you don't know him? You don't have any peace with your creator? Have no expectation to ever experience any peace here on earth in your life. And so looking back, I could say that was the problem. But while I was going through that problem, I didn't know. I just became a seal, and I'm thinking, man, that's it. That's it. And maybe if there is another wrong I'm not thinking of here, I mean, if that was so short-lived, like this is all life has to offer, I'm thinking, well, if anything, I still got some revenge to look forward to. You know, I'm going to get some get back from my mentor. And so I still kind of stuck a little bit in that, that anger, that hatred. And while I was on uh, SEAL Team 1, I get put on SEAL Team 1, and we're going through our process, our, our workup, getting ready to go deploy, I wind up finding myself in a situation where I'm hearing these words from 2 Kings chapter 5 that we just read. And so now if we could circle back and kind of picture Naaman's life. Remember, Naaman, he's this mighty man of valor. Guy sounds like he could have been a SEAL, had there been such a thing during his time. He's this mighty man of valor, but what? He's a leper. And how serious is leprosy? Jesus, looking back, said nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. And so circle back and picture life like this for Naaman, if you would. So much for all that success, so much for that mighty man, so much for all that armor that he wears as this soldier. Because you know what? What's really going on underneath that armor that we don't necessarily see? What's really going on underneath all that clothing there, Naaman? Well, what's really going on is he's literally deteriorating. He's falling apart. Naaman is a dead man walking. As I listened, how quickly I related with that guy right there. Because I'm thinking, here I am. I'm wearing the, the armor, right, of being a seal. I don't let my family and my friends, like, when they're like, Chad, you did it. You became a seal. I would just be like, woo, yeah, living a dream. Rock star. What's the truth? I was more miserable at that stage of my life than I'd ever been. And many of you are in that condition right now. Your family members, your coworkers, your friends, they see a certain person on the outside. What kind of fa facade are you putting on? What kind of front are you putting on? All right, you wear the armor on the outside when in reality, underneath it all, you got some other issues going on too. And so no doubt about it, Naaman being the kind of guy that probably does things in his own strength and might, he wants to fix himself, right? Remember, Jesus says nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. But suddenly someone speaks up. Who's the unsung hero in this story? This little girl. This little servant girl is the unsung hero. She is the evangelist. She speaks up and says, if only my master with the prophet was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Naaman is desperate, so he decides, I got to go. I got to try it. But remember, this is enemy-occupied territory. So he has to get approval from his king. King says, go, I'll send a letter with you. Remember, Naaman's bringing the equivalent of all these millions upon millions of dollars. He's going to try and pay this guy off. I mean, isn't that how it is? There's all kinds of adversity, like I said, that you face. You know, some of you know the adversity of having a, a loved one that is sick and hurting and in the hospital. And maybe you have some type of, you know, savings that you've worked hard to save up. But then suddenly when their life is in danger, they're in the crosshairs of death. It's like you will empty your bank account. Do whatever. I don't care. Take it to save their life. And so this is probably Naaman's thinking. What's his money to him if he's not going to be around. And so he's prepared to pay this guy off. He's going to give him his wealth to give me my life back. We're going to find out this is something you can't buy. It's not for sale. And so he gets there to the door. 150 mile trip. Entourage there. The guy doesn't even come to the door. Winds up relaying a message through a servant. Servant tells him if you go dip in the Jordan River seven times. When you come up. Your flesh will be restored to you. You'll be clean. So Naaman's response. Well let's go. <laughs> no. He becomes. It says furious 
And why? Well, you don't have to wonder why. He vents out loud and it's recorded in the scriptures, starting off with this expectation. He expected that guy to come out of his place. He thought he was going to wave his hand over the place, call in the name of the Lord as God, strike the leprosy away. And instead, he just gets treated like this less than a normal. He won't even give him a face-to-face. I bet Naaman could probably just about have this guy's head right now. And so before he does something like that, he turns and he's just storming off. He's leaving in a rage. And if he continues in that direction, what happens? He dies because it's terminal. That's the walking, the dead man walking direction. Cool thing is Naaman's surrounded by some people that care about him. And I'm sure they don't know exactly how this works, but they know this much. We need to get our Naaman back in front of that God of Israel, step back, and let the supernatural do his thing. So they're just running up to him, and remember, they're just pleading with him, trying to reason with him. Come on, look, Naaman, you know if this guy came out, gave you some big, great thing to do, you would have done it. I mean, it's so true. What if he did come out, like really stroke his ego, kick out a red carpet? Oh, Naaman, the mighty man of valor, your reputation precedes you. Now, have I got quite the rite of passage? This is something only a mighty man of valor can do. It's going to take some strength and might. Kick off your shoes. We got broken glass. You're going to run it barefoot. Then we got this CrossFit exercise. You finish it in time, and you will be fixed of your leprosy. I mean, I can't help but to think Naaman, and many of us would probably be like, show me where to start. But because it's such a simple thing, what was it? Just go wash and be clean. It was such a simple thing. What did it seem like to him? A foolish thing. Well, that's exactly what it says about the preaching of the cross. In the New Testament, it says the preaching of the cross is what? Foolishness to who? Those that are perishing. No doubt about it, Naaman is in a state of perishing. And if you haven't caught it yet, what is Naaman's real problem? Is it that leprosy? Or is it another word that starts with P? pride. It's the pride and the ego. He won't go do this simple thing. In fact, he's just thinking about the physical aspects of it. Go wash myself off. Don't have cleaner waters where I'm from in Damascus. But for whatever reason, something these guys say to him, it changes him. And I think this is where God begins to convict and get through. Some of you have probably experienced this in your life, and some of you, maybe you have been utilized as an instrument or a weapon in God's hands in this way and not even realized it. But I know in my life, I had a seal by the name of Jeff Branstead that said to me, before I was a believer, he says, Chad, I don't know what it is, but I know this much. God will not work with you until you give him an empty template to work with. I just kind of brushed it off, what he said, but that ate away at me for years. And when I became a believer, I couldn't wait to tell him. I want you to know something, Jeff, that those words that you shared with me, remember when you said God won't work with you until you give him an empty template to work with? He goes, no. I'm like, you don't? I'm like, hang on. Let me remind you where we're at. Silver Strand, San Diego, we're talking about God. And you said, he goes, I said that? Oh, yeah, you said He says, that doesn't sound like something I'd say. I'm like, dude, you said that. He, like, he doesn't even remember. But that's the point is that sometimes just the littlest things that you say can set off quite the butterfly effect inside of somebody's head. God could speak through a donkey if he wants to. He could speak through rocks and make him cry out. And so he could certainly use simple men and women like you and I. And so these guys say something, but somehow it gets through. Naaman decides, I'm going to do this. And what he's about to do is a whole lot more than a mere physical change of direction. I think he understands now, in order for me to live, I must die. I have to die to self. I have to humble myself. I got to strip away the pride, strip away the ego. I got to make this walk to my own funeral. And so as he's changing direction, there's a lot going on, right? There's emotional, intellectual, physical, most importantly, I think spiritual change happening here. 
As he's stripping away that armor that surely would need to go, he's stripping away what needed to go all that time, the pride, the ego, being transparent, being real, being exposed. Maybe his men seeing the real Naaman for the first time. Because when we have some type of vulnerability, do we just air it out and flaunt it for everyone to see? No, we cover that stuff up. But there he is just being so transparent and real and in humility, dipping himself these five, six times. Nothing's happening at this point. I mean, this is going to take faith and trust. That number seven, it's a number of completion. He goes down, comes up. That seventh time in the literal Hebrew language, the, the picture is this. He had brand new skin like that of a baby. Could you imagine just the filth of leprosy? What that looks like? Your skin is all spotted and blotted and blemished and parts are falling off. Then he comes up that seventh time and he's got that brand new operating room baby skin. So I remember listening to this and really kind of being on the edge of my seat because it's inspiring. I don't care who you are, believe it or not, that's a story right there. You know, that's something where it's like going to the movies. It's like you, I loved going to the movies at that time because part of it was like, man, it was a little bit of an, uh, just an escape. For a little bit, you got a little bit of a reprieve. Like you don't got to think about what you got going on in life. You don't got to stress out about like, you know, work or relationships or just, ah, you know. You could just not be you for a little bit. The lights come down and you live vicariously through somebody else in an air-conditioned facility while you're eating a little popcorn. You know, and then the heroes, and we know how the story goes. You know, you got the hero that goes through some type of adversity and then there's like this arc of the character, this transformation. It all works out for the guy in the end. You know, hero wins, guy gets the girl. And then what? And then we know what happens. The next step is the credits roll. <laughs> and then the lights come back on. And now it's no longer time for you to live vicariously through another character. It's no longer inspiration time. Now it's time for you to get back into your shoes and face reality. Go out there into the world. I want to make a point that the credits don't roll right here in the story. This is where the leaping off becomes a lot more personal. That just as God provided this way out for Naaman, he's provided a solution for you and I as well. But first we have to really appreciate our condition before we really appreciate the cure. And so remember, Naaman is this man on the outside in front of all these other guys, the armor that he wears. Again, who are you? Who are you in front of your coworkers? Who are you in front of your family and friends when in reality you got other issues going on underneath it all? Naaman had this disease. It was leprosy. It leads to death. You and I have a disease apart from God, and it leads to death. You could call it S-I-N positive. The wages of sin is death. And just like Naaman couldn't do anything to get Leprosy off of himself. Be honest with yourself, man and woman. Is there anything you can do to get sin off of yourself? No. You can't get it off. It's the impossible. But God provided a way out. In what form? Is it dipping into the Jordan River? No, this is what God did. God dipped his son, you could say, down into the world on a rescue mission. This son of God, this son of man, this Jesus of Nazareth. And what he did was he lived a holy, perfect, sinless life. So if you haven't caught it yet, that leprosy is us, spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking, we are lepers. We are spotted and blotted and blemished. But this Jesus, the life that he lived, he was holy and pure without sin. No blemish on him. And then he goes to the cross. What was the purpose of him going to the cross? It's explained explicitly in the Gospel of Matthew. 
amongst other places, but you'll name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. Here's a picture for you. At the cross, Jesus trades skin with you and I. He takes our leprosy, as it were, our sin upon himself, pays the penalty of it in full at the cross so that we could be lavished with God's grace and his mercy as though we lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. Not only does he pay the penalty of your sin and my sin in full at the cross, but he rises again from the grave. And this is the big validation here. This was the blue check mark next to his name. He really is who he claimed to be, the son of God. Like this is how the father verified it, rising him from the grave. He's vindicated, he's no blasphemer, and he's, it's, it validates his teachings, exclusive teachings, like no one else can save you. Only him, he's the only solution for sin. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other name given among men by which we must or can be saved. And so paying the penalty of our sin and fall at the cross, that should come with some gratitude from us, right? And rising again from the grave and his resurrected where he says, because I live, speaking of this life that overcomes the grave, because I live, you also shall live. It's a trip. I was just at a funeral a couple days ago. And it's like, and those are words that we'll focus on in just a moment. But just think about this for a moment. If you guys have ever been to, you know, a funeral or you ever been to a funeral home or the grave sites, it's like I'm walking past all of these names and year dates and dashes and end dates, dashes and end dates. That'll, all, that'll be one of us one day. And it's like, it's, it's easy for us to think of death in like a third person sense. It's easy for, uh, for us to think of death always as somebody else. But have you ever really just taken a moment, like turn off the radio, like stop all the noise around you and just think for a moment. Like it's inescapable. Should the Lord tarry, it's inescapable. You and I, we all are going to die. We are just gonna be another one. We're just, we're just living at our dash right now. That's all it is. And some of us, we have, we, none of us really know how long that dash is gonna be. Some of it was like, you know, born in 1965, died in 1973. It's like, whoa, little kid. Others, they went a long time. But you're just living out your dash right now. Nobody's promised tomorrow. We've all said goodbye and see you later to people we didn't see later. You don't know. And then you're before your creator. And your life is required of you. And it's time to give an account. And so this life here on earth, it's, it's just a little vapor. It's a little dash that we're, that we're living out. But Jesus says that you can overcome the grave. And so this body that we're in, it's just a tent, it's just a vehicle. You are not a body that has a soul. Like you, each and every one of you, individual, made in the image of God, made in his likeness, you are a soul that has a body, not a body that has a soul. And Jesus says you too can overcome the grave. You will live on forever eternal life with him. How? If anyone wants to come after me, they must deny self. Isn't that interesting? What was the turning point for Naaman? He needed to make this 180. He needed to deny self, humble himself, and put his faith and trust in the God of Israel to do what? God of Israel, you come through. God of Israel, you do the heavy lifting. Deny self, Jesus says. It's repent and put your faith and trust in him to do what? To do the heavy lifting, to do what he says he'll do. He does the hard part. We call him Savior. Why? Because he saves you from your sin. And the moment any man or woman does that, it's not my word. It's God's word on it. He says he'll remember your sin no more. He'll remove it as far away as the east is from the west. It's based off of his faithfulness. 
We as human beings, we do a terrible job of keeping our word. He keeps his word every time without fail. And so, you know, hearing this, man, I wish I had more time. I'm getting close to the very end here. Hearing this, I realized this is truth. And I realized this is the thing that I truly was missing all along is a right relationship with the creator. And then hearing and seeing what Jesus did, I, I just felt this huge gratitude. It's like, man, this the weight of the world lifted off my shoulders, realizing that he paid for all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my regret. Later learning what the Bible says, yeah, that's true. He who is forgiven of much is much more thankful. I thought and felt, and I knew, I have a lot to be forgiven for. And so I was very thankful. And I did what the scriptures say. Repent, put your faith and trust in Jesus, Savior and Lord. And I'll just say that the scriptures are true. For those that do that, any man or woman that does that, any man that, that puts their faith and trust in him, old things pass away, behold, all things become new. Forgiveness of sin, a place in eternity in heaven, but not just that then. We're not there yet, right? While you're here on earth, a lane to be in. A lane to be in that God can put his hand upon. And so I did just that March 14, 2007, while I was in the SEAL teams, and I experienced the truth of those scriptures. And the way that I looked at it then was that all this time before, I actually was kind of living for self. I certainly wasn't living for God. And when you're living for self, when it's like me, me, me stuff, that's like decaf. It just won't deliver, all right? But you can flip it around. You can say, not for me, but for thee. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whether that be a stay-at-home mom, construction world, corporate world, whatever you do, seal, seal for Christ. Then I realize now the things that I do when I bring the Lord into it, it's not just temporal. It's not just insignificant in that way. It's not just dust of the earth. I'm bringing, I'm infusing the Lord into the things that I do. So when I'm a seal for Christ, now the things that I do here will echo in eternity. Fast forward that final operation. We are so short on time. In fact, I'm supposed to be done by now. So let me just go like this. I came home alive and there's a much more important aspect I want to focus on is that on those that don't. We need to remember, I kind of started off talking about freedom isn't free. And what is it paid for in? The currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. Let me highlight a name. One will be Michael Mansour, U.S. Navy SEAL. When he's in a place called Ramadi, out in Iraq, he's on top of a roof providing cover for other SEALs that are out on the road. When from this unknown location, an insurgent comes running up, throws his hand grenade up there on the roof, and of all the places, it bounces off of Mikey's chest into the dark. And, and if you can imagine, he had an exit just a step and turn away. I mean, all he had to do was make a couple quick moves, and he's out of the way. But here's the catch is that there's other SEALs that were on the roof with them in a proned-out position. They don't got time to get up and make it past this grenade. So what's Mikey do? Yells to these guys, grenade, so they have time to take some kind of cover as he just throws himself over the top, covering it just in time for it to go off and hit his body. And he absorbed the wrath of that grenade, that shrapnel, the metal, and he died. But because of what he did, every single one of these other guys on the roof, they all lived. And so I think you could mark these words down in history as true. Greater love has no one than this, one that lays down his life for his friends. My friend Scott, you know, honestly, for the longest time, for probably like years, I did not want to even talk about it just because it was hard, it was difficult. You know, but realizing in a way, and maybe this is something I could pass on to some of you that have lost somebody before, is that you know, there's, there's two deaths that that person could die. There's the death that happened, then the death of their memory. You can't let that happen. And so realizing, like, I'm not going to allow that second death to happen in that sense, the death of his memory. So it's, it's valuable to share, you know, the story to other people. And I also realize that, man, he's a picture. He's a picture of that sacrifice. 
Although all these awful things, he was killed and hung from that bridge. He was over there for a reason, for a purpose, for freedom's sake. And so in his life, I see the manifestation of the truth of those words as well. It's another example of greater love has known than this one that lays down his life for his friends. You could see this in men like Mike Monsoor and Scott Helvenston. But the greatest of all, look to the cross. The man who spoke those words of greater love. That just as Michael Monsoor jumped on a hand grenade absorbing the blast of that grenade on himself so others could live. And I appreciate that all of you have like a sort of respect and reverence for that. I could sense it. You can feel it in the air. Have you ever thought about how Jesus, when he went to the cross, he absorbed the blast. He jumped on that grenade, as it were. He took all of the wrath that we deserved coming our way, all of that shrapnel, the sin, he took it upon himself. Why? So that we could sort of pass by and live. See, Mikey could have saved himself, but instead he covered that grenade to save others. Jesus could have saved himself. He was sinless. But he covered our sin so that we could live with him in eternity. And then my friend Scott killed and hung from that bridge ultimately for freedom's sake. Let's never forget that Jesus, he was killed and hung, wasn't he? From the cross of Calvary. So we could be set free. He wanted to set you free. He wanted to set me free. We got to make it personal. It's not just group think, right? He would have done it for you if you were the only one. I mean, that is the greatest act of love. He has already made that first move. We love him because he first loved us. And so how could you not want that relationship with someone that already showed their love towards you, the greatest act of love? It comes down to this, two forms of love. Do you love sin so much that you choose to bear hug it and you choose sin over God and you say, I choose this over you? I choose this over you. Or do you finally come to a point where you say, you know what? My love for him outweighs my love for sin. I'm ready to depart from this and choose to be with you, Lord, who already chose me first. It's just two forms of love. It really is that. We're all going to die one day and face the creator. This life is so short. You know, and, and I mean, that's just it. It's the decisions that you make right now that will echo in eternity. It's the decisions you make right now that will affect the trajectory of your eternity and so if you're not right with God, if you were to die right now, answer this in your own head, how would that turn out when you're facing your creator? Is he going to say, come this way, good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father who is in heaven. He says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. Maybe you're like, well, I'm like those in Washington. Sometimes I just abstain from voting. I'm not going to cast a vote. Well, he'll, he'll, he'll say it for you. Because he says, you're either for me, oh, you're not for me? You're either for me or you're against me. You, you better choose. Or by default, you choose the side of darkness. And so our part is simple. It's a heart-mouth confession that Jesus, you are Savior, you are Lord. I turn from my sin, I confess you as my Savior and my Lord. Our part is simple. His part, don't forget how much it cost him. It cost him everything to make it possible. He does all that heavy lifting. For those that do, the reward is great. So we're gonna pray together now and open up an opportunity for anyone here that would like to, that needs to do that. As quickly as Naaman's leprosy was wiped out and blotted away, your sin can be wiped out and blotted away. Let's pray. Father, we come before you just thankful for uh, just this day and thankful for the gift of life you made us in your image you set us above all of the other creatures all of the other animals of the earth we bear your unique image you've given us the ability to reason you've given us a heart that helps us to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong 
And so, Lord, now I just pray that your Holy Spirit would convict the hearts of sin and righteousness of judgment, that you would open the door of hearts and minds right now, that they would get a clear glimpse of your son Jesus, what the cross is all about, what life is all about. To live is Christ, to know you. So I pray for everyone here, Lord, that, that maybe does not know you, that they would have the strength to make that commitment, to turn from sin, put their faith and trust in you. So with everyone's heads bowed, eyes closed, I just ask if you find yourself here this, this afternoon as we wrap up, it's closing time. As we're here, you, you, you realize if you, as you've come in here today that you realize you've been playing the part of Naaman. You are this other man, this other woman on the outside in front of others. When in reality, there's other issues going on underneath it all. Who are you? Just be real with yourself. Who are you in that room? Lights off. All you're left with is your own thoughts. You know who that person is. And there's nothing that God doesn't see. There's nothing that's unveiled to him. The thing is, he doesn't want to point a finger at you. He doesn't want to rub your nose in any form of shame. What he wants to do is set you free. And so just ponder for a moment what the Savior has done for you already at the cross. He's already made those first moves. And so where do you desire a relationship with him? Or do you choose darkness over him? He wins in the end. We've read the pack of the book. And so choose life. And so remember him. He says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. I'd love nothing more than to lead those of you that don't know him in a prayer of a confession. I will give you the words, but they need to be your words. You think about what you say before you say it. Take ownership of it, and it will be meaningful. And so if you find yourself here realizing if you stood before God right now in the condition that you're in, it would not be good. And you don't want it to be like that. You want to get right with him? I'd like to lead you in a prayer. If that's you, if that's you, would you just lift a hand wherever you're at? We're going to pray together. Praise God. There's many of you, but at the same time, it doesn't even matter if it's just one of you. This isn't a look left, look right right now. This is between you and God. So prepare yourselves like men and women of God. So if your hand is up, I ask you hold it up all the way. It's going all in. Uh, maybe you find yourself here identifying as a Christian. That's the label on the outside of the bottle, but you know the inside it doesn't match up. And you need an opportunity like that prodigal son to come home, to get back on the right track. If that's you, would you lift up a hand wherever you're at and we could pray a prayer of recommitment to the Lord with these as well. Just hold your hand up all the way. Praise God. God's doing something here. Now, those of you that have your hands up, as we are about to pray together, I ask if your hand is up and you mean it, I repeat, if your hand is up and you mean it, stand up. If you don't mean it, just slip your hand back down quietly. No one's going to point you out. But those of you standing right now, we're about to pray. Everyone else, eyes closed. But those of you standing, I ask that you would open your eyes and look at me. Just give me your eyes. We are about to do something that truly can change the trajectory of the rest of your eternity. This is a commitment like no other. There's commitments you make at an altar to a significant other. This is a relationship you enter into like no other. And so I want to be very clear as we pray together, there's a scenario where you just rattle out words after me thoughtlessly and it will be meaningless. And there's a scenario where you think about what you say. You take ownership of these words, and when you say them, you mean them, and it will be meaningful and echo an eternity just so that you go into this eyes wide open, 
This is a prayer where you say, God, I repent of my sin. Jesus, I believe you are the risen Savior and Lord. If you're prepared to do that, would you please pray with me? Repeat these words out loud after me from a sincere heart. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but you died on the cross for me and rose again. I turn from my sin now, and I ask you to be my Savior. Be my Lord. Thank you for loving me and dying for me and help me to follow you from this moment forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yes, amen. Praise God for those of you that just prayed. You guys could take your, your seats and we got a gift for you. Those of you that prayed, we want to get a Bible into each and every one of your hands. We want to get you plugged in, like welcome to the team. And now here's the battlefront, all right? And so, you know if you meant that prayer, God knows if you meant that prayer, his word on it. Purpose of life, church, is to know God. Those of you that know him, what now? Make him known. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, enemy occupied territory, that is what this world is. But Christianity is the story about how our rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and now he's calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. We're looking to sabotage the plans of the enemy of our soul. He is a suicide bomber. He is going down. He's trying to take people out with them. But God has armed you and I with the greatest weapon of all to charge the kingdom of darkness with. It's better than a 50 cal. It could really reach out and touch somebody. It's the gospel message. Amen? All right. So real quick, I went over time and I apologize, okay? But I, I, I should mention this. Some people are asking what the frog is all about. They're like, is that something off a hot topic out there, that shirt? Or, uh, you know, is that part of the curse from Exodus? No. Uh, in the SEAL teams, we're known as frogmen. And so we wear the bone frog to honor and remember fallen frogmen. And so the, the words on the back of the shirt, it says, greater love is known than this one that least on his life, first friends, Jesus' words. No scripture reference. Why? Because I want people to ask on the street. And if they see a scripture reference, you're only going to get like fist bumps from other Christians. Other people will be like, oh, it's a God shirt. Almost out of question. Not going into that one. But there's no reference. You know the words, all right? So I share with them that this represents seals that have shed their blood for your earthly freedom. And they're typically like, okay, I didn't know about that. That's cool. And then they're like, I like those words. And they never know. They're like, who said that? Was that like Socrates or Plato? It's like, no. So just as these guys shed their blood for your earthly freedom, that was the Savior that said those words. And he shed his blood for your eternal freedom. And it's almost like a script. I could say it with them. I never thought about it that way before. And so it's actually a great tool uh, to be sharing uh, the cross with other people. And so I just wanted to explain that. And then you got, do you guys want to know what happened in that ambush? Never got around to it? Yeah? Okay, we're way over time. So you're going to have to get the book. It's in the back. I'll be happy to sign it for you. All right? All right, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for your time. Praise God for those of you that prayed. Thank you for listening. We pray that this message has ministered to your heart. If you don't already have a church you call home, we invite you to join us at Valley Bible Fellowship for worship, Bible study, fellowship, and more. We're at 2300 East Brundage Lane in Bakersfield, California, near Mount Vernon and Freeway 58. Reach us by phone at 661-325-2251 or visit our website at vbf.org. Here is our King, here is our love.